Very special. Paranormal Almanac. Halloween Spooktacular. I'm your host, Kurt Zavig, and welcome to another spooktacular edition of Paranormal Almanac. And on this edition, well, let's just call it a weird shit show. Not like the ones I did online, but, well, you'll see. But first, as always, let's shout out the patrons that make this show what it is. I love the patrons. I got a letter from a patron I'll be talking about in just a second that was just phenomenal. But I absolutely love the patrons. Um, so let's give them the, 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 the shout out that they deserve, I guess is what I want to say. That's right. We got shout outs going out to Heather G. Shooky Shooky. Is it Shooky Shooky or shot? Yeah, it's gotta be Shooky Shooky. Uh, Zeus. Oh, I wish I had the clap button right there. I do another one. What's it? Ah, oh, Lee, I love you, buddy. Paula Cassidy Bishop. Hey, howdy. Hi, Rick. Nico sharing the mouse. That's right. In the middle of the shout outs, I'm pausing to tell you about a wonderful, wonderful letter that I've got from Nico and Steve share and the mouse and rum says hi right back to the mouse. Um, thank you so much for sending the, the, uh, Halloween card and the absolutely wonderful, wonderful letter. It, this letter had everything. It was touching. It was very sweet. Mention Stitch was very lovely. But it was also like four pages back in front of the most interesting stories. And I was told I could actually share the stories. Um, said, please feel free to use any of these you might get a kick out of. Trust me, I'm going to because I got a kick out of all of it. I can't thank you enough for the wonderful letter. I forgot what it's like to... Uh, you know, get an actual letter. Like, email's phenomenal. I love emails. Emails are great. Please feel free to email me at paranormalalmanac at gmail.com. I love them. But something about a tangible letter where I could just sit and read it, and it was, it, it went, it told me about them. It told me about some paranormal experiences that were just amazing, including the Phoenix Lights. I mean, there's a little bit of everything in this letter. So, yeah, total pause. I think the first time I've ever done a real big pause in the shout-outs, but I had to do it to once again thank Nico and Steve and the mouse for such a wonderful letter. I really, really did appreciate it. Thank you. All right, back to the shout-outs. Shout-outs to Andrew, Paul, Mark, Tortuga, Hannah Boo, Mike from Jersey, Tuesday Marie, Jay Bizzle. I like that. Jay Bizzle. That, that gives me a flashback to the uh, to like a Beastie Boy era rap, and I really like it. Uh, Andy Ross, Tracy, Virginia Mailman. That's Ginny. Tony, Jason, Vicky Crow, Clay W. Buzz, Tom Pro, Pro Oh no, Proletariat. I'm back. Libido Works, Glacier Maine, Isabel, Jen, Jen, Stacy, Amber, Tracy, Sandy, Kelly, Joe, Menace the Beast, Kickass Magic, Robot, Web Comic, Sandy, Page, Kosh, Sean, Andrew, Scott, Andrea, Devin, Melody, Ricardo, Vicky, Vanessa, Marisol, Liam. 
Roger, Michael, Alicia, Becca, Jake, and the Beasties, Elizabeth, Voidtech, Sherry, Art Muffin, Trudy, Tim, Kenneth, Paul, Ricardo, Ian, Armor Times 10, Alexandra, George, Seth, Zozo the Demon, clap, 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 Hayden, Cindy, Ashley, what's that? Carrie, Robin, Will, Lauren, and Phil Mangano, Russell, April, Isabel, Audra, Dorian, Cindy, Bob, Bob, Stacy, Jerry, Scoston, Lindsay, Hahn, hey, howdy, hi, Megan, Jeff, T, Harley, Suzanne, Joe, Lawrence, Lawrence, Strawn, hey, howdy, hi, Veronica, Autumn, J. Mark, Manning, Carolyn, Martin, Jade, Nanashi, Chuck, Todd, Jamie, and Elijah Hendrickson, miss them, I gotta contact them, I gotta hang out soon, Dan, Laura Pitts, and GamerFan. So, yeah, uh, I mentioned last time that I wanted to give an additional hand of fate to a person that uh, had been with us the longest. And I'll be honest, I just had it a second ago, and now it's not doing it. Um, hello, why can't I see this? So, gamer fan, I thought it, I suspected it, I guessed it, and I guessed it right. Gamer fan, sir, you will be getting... Your own hand of fate. You don't even have to enter a contest to get it. You just get it. You get a game. You get a gamer fan hand of fate because you know you've been around forever, and I appreciate you every month. So you're gonna get your own hand of fate, just like I promised. the uh, The drawing is coming up next weekend, sometime next weekend. Maybe the thirtieth, maybe the first, maybe the thirty first. I don't know, but sometime next weekend will be the drawing for a hand of fate. Now, I've had a couple people email me saying, hey, hey, I, I wanted to purchase a hand of fate and I haven't heard back from you. There's a reason. I want to throw you all into the contest first. That way, if you win one, you don't have to pay for one. If you didn't win, then I'll respond saying, okay, well, you didn't win, unfortunately, but, you know, here's, here's how we can go ahead and do a purchase of a hand of fate. But I wanted to put you into the entries first. I was thinking about it. I was like, well, that's just not fair because, like, they're nice enough to say they want to buy one, but what if they ended up would have ended up winning one? I want to give you the chance to win one. So if you've said you want to purchase a hand of fate and have not heard back from me, don't worry. It's there's a reason for it, and that reason is I put you into the entries of the hand of fate. If you want to, if you might be saying, Kurt, I want to get in on this hand of fate contest, easy. Email paranormalalmanac at gmail.com with hand of fate giveaway as a subject or something that, you know, that effect. And then your name and your, or your name and your address in the body. And, uh, this weekend, the 31st weekend, the Halloween weekend, I'm going to be doing a giveaway of a hand of fate replica, not the real hand of fate. That one's staying, is it still there? Yeah. Okay. It's still right there. Staying right where it is, but a replica of the hand of fate. And it's a, you know, handmade by me from beginning to end, hand painted and everything, hand numbered. Uh, they're really neat is what I'm trying to say. So if you don't end up winning next weekend, don't worry. There are still hand of fates available for purchase. They're a hundred bucks each. You just email me saying, I'd like to buy a hand of fate. And then I will email you back a PayPal link. As soon as I get the PayPal from you, I will send it out to you. You might be saying, well, hundred bucks, that's a lot of money. Kind of is, but it's very fragile. It's fairly big. It's all handmade, so it took a lot of time to do it, but the shipping is going to be expensive. So I didn't want to sell them for like, oh, they're 25 bucks. And then shipping is going to cost me 50 bucks to ship them, you know, that kind of a thing. So it's a hundred bucks 
shipped. Enjoy your own hand of fate at home. Okay. Uh, there's also two special shout outs that I never want to forget, but I got kind of mixed up in the hand of fate stuff for the patrons. Uh, two special shout outs for Joe Teague and Stitch. That'll never change, unfortunately. All righty. So uh, let's see. I did the hand of fate update kind of mixed in with the shout outs to the patrons. I wanted to say, just in case you're one of those people that skipped through the shout outs, I want to say thank you again to Nico and Steve and the mouse who sent me just an absolutely wonderful letter. And then um, if you want to send me a letter, do I have that address up? Maybe. Let's see. Uh, ah, here I do. So if you want to send me a letter or something or another kind of weird hand of fate kind of thing, uh, you can send it to me. You can mail me. You can mail me at Paranormal Almanac or Kurt Sandvig at one eight one two. West Burbank Boulevard, number 7102, in Burbank, California, 91506. Once again, 1812, West Burbank Boulevard, number 7102, Burbank, California, 91506. I get a lot of cool stuff from, from fans. I, I've gotten shirts. I've gotten, I've gotten um, an amazing, Lauren Strawn sent me an absolutely amazing Dr. Kurt Bigfoot for when I um, got my cryptozoology degree. And in case you don't mean, I'm assuming that not everybody listens to every episode. I actually am a licensed cryptozoologist, or I got a degree in cryptozoology, I should say, hanging on the wall right behind me. So when I do a live episode this week, which is my hope, I'm hoping to get one out this week, um, you'll be able to see it right behind me and you'll be able to actually see the Dr. Kurt uh, Sasquatch. But I've, I've received, I've received stuffed animals. I've received paintings that are just amazing that I still love every day when I walk by them. I absolutely love them. Um, but just what you guys, you guys are the best is what I'm saying. I don't know what I'm trying to say, but it's just that you guys are the best is what I'm saying. Alrighty. Let's get right in into uh, paranormal news. Which button is it? I don't know. Let's try this one. Welcome. Oh, I got it. I got to be honest, I was a little surprised I got the paranormal news button correct because these are my Halloween buttons, so they're not set up like the normal buttons. The other ones, you know, the normal ones, boop, push it, and I'm, I'm ready to go. Uh, do I want uh, a rim shot? See, it's right there. I'm ready to rock and roll. But the Halloween ones I'm not familiar with, so I guessed right is what I'm saying. I know what I'm doing. This is like a professional radio show here. I'm like uh, Fraser Crane over here. All righty, first story in uh, paranormal news. NASA announces the team members for its UFO studies. That's right, a group of 16 researchers will spend the next nine months studying unidentified aerial phenomena, or UAPs, or UFOs. The research, will, uh, which will use unclassified data, which makes me mad, why don't they get access to the classified data, and they can just say, oh, and they have access to class. They don't have to give it to us, but they can say they have access to the classified data. But anyhow, they'll, lead a, uh, they'll make a report that will be made available to the public next year. NASA's research follows the Pentagon's announcement in July that it would create an, um, an office to track reports of UAPs. 
Earlier this year, Congress held a public hearing on UFOs for the first time in 50 years. But y'all know everything about that. So when we get to the stuff that you already know about, I skip to the next story. And up next in Paranormal News, this is one that I've been wanting to watch, but I haven't because, as you know, if it's a video, I wait until I'm live on air to watch it to find out just what's going on. Pilot shares video of strange UFO sightings in skies over the U.S. This comes from the Today Show. Um, so UFO sightings caught on film by pilots across America. So let's, uh, let's jump on in and find out what's going on in the Today Show talking about UFOs. There's a point at the nope, end of that's an ad. So while the ad is playing, I just want to say, who would have thought that the Today Show would be doing a news, quote-unquote, news story about UFOs? I never would have thought it. Honestly, like, times are definitely a-changing, and their UFO stories are going crazy around the world. Here we go. appearing in the night from the skies over Missouri to above the Pacific Ocean. It's not a satellite, and it's not a meteor. All baffling pilots mid-flight. I don't know what the uh, common denominator is, but it's always at the bottom of the Big Dipper. Mark Holsey is a former F-18 fighter pilot. This August, he was piloting a private jet off the coast of Los Angeles when he says he saw as many as seven mysterious objects appearing to fly thousands of feet above him. This is audio from that night alerting air traffic control. They're going around in circles, maybe three aircraft. They said you're not entering any military airspace. by Ben Hansen researcher who has spoken to dozens of pilots of commercial flights that have recently had similar encounters. So it seems like it might be getting more frequent? It's either getting more frequent or it's getting noticed more. Okay, there it is. But while no one seems to know what they're seeing, Holsey is sure these fast orbiting objects aren't satellites or any known military aircraft. There's nothing that flies that high. So the odds of it being a military aircraft doing high G loads like that, it's just, it's impossible. It's completely impossible. Does this phenomenon seem to be under intelligent control? That's the only thing it could be. I mean, it's either artificial or, or biological. It all comes on the heels of a congressional hearing earlier this year where intelligence officials testified for the first time ever that there were about 400 new sightings of unidentifiable objects, adding UAP reports are frequent and continuing. Yeah, they are. Uh, no, I do not. And this latest wave of sightings from pilots could be just the beginning. Just the beginning. All righty, so that's about it. For the, It keeps going on for another couple minutes, but it just it keeps talking about the same stuff over and over again about how pilots are noticing them more, they're reporting them more, the stigma is slowly going away, not as quickly as I would like, but the stigma is slowly going away, which is something that we need. We need there to be no stigma in reporting UFOs so we can get an accurate count of how often pilots are actually seeing UAPs or UFOs. Uh, again, I think it's a phenomenal step forward towards disclosure, but I wish it was happening quicker. Up next in paranormal news, Nessie is back in paranormal news because Nessie's been spotted for the sixth time this year by Scottish mother and daughter. That's right. The sixth sighting of Nessie in 2022 has been officially added to the official Loch Ness Monster Sightings Register. Nessie was spotted by a mother and daughter visiting Loch Ness from the east of Scotland on October 11th. The pair reported seeing the large, long-necked monster at about... Not a monster. Come on. Come on, guys. At, you were doing so well. You were calling her Nessie. You didn't say the word... Not, oh, not a monster. 
at 5.24 p.m. on October 11th. Describing the moment, they said 200 yards off the bank, we noticed a long break in the water, which was otherwise still and calm. As we watched, a black lump appeared out of the water and sat for approximately 30 seconds before disappearing once again under the water. After another 30 seconds, the black lump resurfaced for a shorter amount of time before disappearing under the water again. The lump appeared to be boxy in shape and about the size of a football. It did not appear to swim about, just rather bobbed and then disappeared on the water, under the water before resurfacing to do the same thing a second time. Love it. Six sighting and Nessie. 2022 is a good, it might not be a good year for everything else, but it is a damn good year for Nessie. So at least it's something. Now this next one. I added this next one because of the, the, um, the article headline alone. I had to add it once I saw the, the, the headline. I was like, well, I'm, I'm definitely adding this to uh, Paranormal Almanac News or Paranormal News. A Seattle author asks, what if Bigfoot was a lesbian? See, told you. Uh, Sasquatch meets The Bachelor and Samantha Allen's debut novel, Patricia Wants a Cuddle. Patricia wants to cuddle, sorry. The gory summer beach read you didn't know you needed. Uh, let's see, there's the, the premise of this is, what if Bigfoot were a woman living on a small island in the San Juans when she encountered a trope, a troop, a troop, a trope, troop of delicious looking young women participating in a reality TV show akin to The Bachelor. That's right, that's the premise of Patricia Wants to Cuddle, the fast-paced and fun but somewhat gory debut novel by Seattle reporter and memoirist Samantha Allen. Uh, do you know what? It's fiction. Sadly, sorry everybody, it is fiction. But um, fiction or not, that's a pretty freaking great premise. And I, it's paranormal news-worthy premise. Alrighty, up next in paranormal news. You want some money? You guys want money? You out there thinking, Kurt, we want money. Okay, well, fine. All right. Calm down. Here is your chance for some money. Lake Pepin. Is it Pepin or Pippin? I think it's Pepin. Lake Pepin monster fires up people. Oh, good Lord. Lake Pepin monster fires up people's imaginations and local economy. A local businessman is offering a $50,000 reward for proof of a sea monster, not a monster, in a Minnesota lake. Now that the ice has melted off of Lake Pepin, 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 I don't know, Larry Nielsen wants to remind everyone there's something lurking in the blue-green waters, and he's willing to pay you to prove it exists. Located on the Mississippi River, Lake Pepin, I'm just going to say it, is bordered by Wisconsin on one side, Minnesota on the other, in the town of Lake City, Minnesota. Uh, but there's also tales of a monster in the lake that have been floating around since the 1870s. Supposedly a large serpent-like creature, or peppy, as the locals call it, has been seen by everyone from the Dakota Indians to local vacationers. Now, he, Nielsen, the owner of a 125-passenger paddlewheel boat, Pearl of the Lake, all right, that just sounds cool, and president of the Lake City Tourism Bureau, is reminding people that there's a $50,000 reward for anyone that can prove that Peppy exists. He said he didn't uh, know the water serpent existed until he saw the creature a few years back. He said, one night, my wife and I were out on Lake Pepin, and there were no other boats out there with us. All of a sudden, I saw a big wake out there against the current. It was about 100 feet long and a foot and a half high. So I started doing some research, and that's when I heard about Pepe. 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 Uh, according to Chad Lewis, a cryptozoologist. Hey, Kurt's a cryptozoologist. 
researcher and author of Pepe, the lake monster of the Mississippi River, reports have been stretched back to the Dakota Indians when the Dakota lived in the Minnesota area. They decided to trade in their birch bark canoes for thicker dugout canoes when traveling the lake in order to protect themselves from the creatures living in the lake that punctured their thinner birch canoes. Uh, While stories of the lake monster died off in the 30s and 40s since the beginning of the 2000s, more people have reported... Oh, it died off in the 30s and 40s. But since the beginning... That should have been a new sentence. Come on, article. Since the beginning of the 2000s, more people have reported seeing Pepe. There you go. If you're in the area, if you want to be in the area, you want $50,000, go out there and get Pepe. Please don't fucking shoot Pepe. Don't, Don't kill it to prove it exists. You know, like... That's the thing that always worries me about these, these big uh, rewards for, for cryptids. Someone's going to want to kill the thing to prove it exists. You don't need to kill it to prove it exists. All righty, up next in paranormal news, let's see. River troll humanoid observed and photographed in coastal Mississippi. Oh, it's kind of the same area. That's right, a river troll humanoid was observed and photographed in, you already said this, in coastal Mississippi. Come on, article. Uh, About six years ago, my family and I lived on our houseboat on the river in a small town in coastal Mississippi, where we were on the dock one evening, on the deck one evening, looking across the river. The tide was low, and you could see well into the woods, maybe 25 yards from us, something bent down near the water drinking. I went and retrieved my binoculars, and I took a closer look. It was a pinkish tan with bulging eyes, funny-looking ears, two arms, two legs, what appeared to be horns coming out of its head, and had a small, round body drinking from the shore. From what I saw, I could swear it was like a troll. It was devil ugly. Oh, that's just mean. Uh, I took my phone out and took a picture. To this day, anyone I show to swears it's a river troll. Now, living on a houseboat, you see a lot of creepy stuff in the swamp. Also, oh, that sounds terrifying. Also, there could be trees or logs laying across the ditch of our 1,000-foot driveway in the middle of the swamp as if something put them there to cross the deep parts. You couldn't just walk up or down without that eerie feeling of being watched. It wasn't just me. Anyone that came out our way felt it. You could also hear what sounded like monkeys. One time, something threw a rock and hit my friend. I still own that property and the houseboats, but none of my grown kids will ever go out there anymore. I don't show the picture to people anymore. I don't have to prove anything, but I'm sharing it with you. Well, all right, let's take a look. So there's photo. I can see branches. I mean, I mean, I'm going to post it so you guys can see it. But between you and I, yeah, I see some very clear branches and some very clear water. And then a thing in the center. Through pareidolia, it does kind of look like a pair of eyes being reflected in the water. But I, it could be anything. It could be a bug on the, the lens of the camera. I mean, sorry. I don't see a river troll is all I'm saying. I wanted to. I wanted to see a river troll when I, you know, I was like, because I'm not going to look at these photos until the episode. Look, I wanted to see it, but I just don't, I don't see it. Already up next in paranormal news. This one goes straight to YouTube, so I got to turn it down because I'm sure it's going to be an ad, and I was right. The accidental capture of an insanely fast, shape-shifting, transparent figure dashing through the trees is what this uh, video says. So let's take a look here. Oh, come on. Uh Uh-huh. Get to the... All right. I'm not hearing anything. Should I be hearing something? Apparently, I'm not supposed to be hearing anything. So, that's fine. Let's... uh, So, it looks like a construction site. 
There's some trees behind the construction site. The camera's slowly panning to the left, making me very nauseous. Oh, what? Do it again. Play it again, dude. Oh, my God. Just play it. Don't. They're trying to do frame by frame, and it just doesn't work. Let me go find the full speed one. Okay. I don't. Again, I'll post it for you guys. Um, I would love to say that I see an insanely fast, shape-shifting, transparent figure dashing through the trees. I just, I just don't. I mean, I see something again, but I wouldn't have ever guessed that there was anything there had they not slown it down and shown it 50 fucking times. All righty, up next in Paranormal News. I'll let you, I want to know what you guys think, though. What are they hiding? A group sues Biden and the National Archives over JFK assassination records. That's right. This is still happening. It happened with Trump. Now it's happening with Biden because they were supposed to release 16,000 records. But Trump postponed it. And then last year, Biden postponed it. So they're saying, nope, the delay is illegal. We're suing you. That's right. Um, the postponement of the release of the final trove of 16,000 records assembled under the President John F. Kennedy Assassination Record Collections Act of 1992 still hasn't happened. Originally, the JFK Records Act signed by President Bill Clinton required that the documents be made public on October 26, 2017. But like I just said, Trump delayed the release, sent it over to Biden. Biden, who said, sorry, he delayed the release. Now, they're saying there's probably not going to be the smoking gun of, you know, who was standing in the on the grassy knoll and also either assisted or, you know, shot President Kennedy. But they're saying there is some stuff on there, and we want to know what it is. And I'll be honest, as you guys know, I'm a... I do love the Kennedy mystery, especially ever since I went down there. I talked about that in an episode a long time ago. You'll have to find it. But I was in Dallas uh, when I was working for MySpace way back in the day. I went to Dallas for this conference, and I talked to a police officer there who had, you know, retired, but he was working for part of the conference, who was there the day that Kennedy was shot. I mean, he was there at Dealey Plaza. It was insane to talk to somebody who was actually there. Not only there, but investigated it. And he said he saw the footprints and the cigarette butts from the grassy knoll. He's actually supposedly, I forget like which one he is. You'll have to listen to the episode because it's been years. But um, he was seen in one of the, I don't remember if it was this, the Zapruder film or if it was one of the other ones, but he was seen running towards the grassy knoll. He's the police officer running towards the grassy knoll. But um, yeah, he went up there and he said, without a doubt, there was another shooter. Without a doubt, there was another shooter. And that the government... I don't think it was the Secret Service at the time. I think it was CIA. Confiscated his notepad and the evidence that they took from the grassy knoll. So to this day, well, I don't know to this day, but to the day that I met him back in early 2000, he was convinced there was another shooter, which he was there. I believe him. He was a police officer. The way that he made it sound, the way that they confiscated everything from the police and kind of took over the investigation, but... Without like, you know, not like, you know, oh, we're going to help you or we're going to take over this investigation because that's our job. No, it was like they took everything and that was it. And the police were shut down and shut out of it. So I am one of those people 
whether you're, you are or not, that's up to you. But I am one of those people that say there was a second shooter. There was somebody in the grassy knoll. I think that um, Oswald got off some shots. I don't know if he was a patsy like some people think. I don't know if he was a double agent or if he was just straight up a patsy like some people think. But uh, or Or like a sleeper agent or anything like that. But there is more to the story is all I'm saying. Anyhow, that's that's I've wasted too much time on that. Let's move on to the next in uh, paranormal news. Doorbell camera captures Black Panther prowling outside British home. That's right, it's not done yet. There were some people that said, nope, sorry, that's a sheep. It's a black sheep. It's not a black cat in the last news story. So let's watch this video and see if it looks like a Black Panther in this one. All right, so it's... Oh, shit. Yeah, that's a fucking black... Okay, I can't wait. You can't say that's a dog. It doesn't move like a dog. It's just the back half of a Black Panther by a car. Oh, that's totally a fucking ginormous cat. Oh, my God. I'm I'm convinced. Uh, I was convinced the last one, but I'm convinced on this one as well. So it's a security camera footage or a doorbell camera footage, I should say, of a house. There's a little car to the left. There's a car across the street, and there's their car in their driveway just to the left of the car by the garage, I'll say, or whatever it is, there is the back half of a cat walking to the right, walking out of the view of the camera, basically. So this piece of security footage from a residence in England shows what appears to be a panther prowling past the driveway of their home. I agree. The intriguing video was reportedly captured last Thursday evening in the community of Warrington. Homeowner Lou Kickman says that his security system alerted him something amiss outside of his house, when he checked his cell phone to see what had caused the sudden notice, he said he was astounded to see a rather sizable black creature with a particularly long and curly tail. Although the animal only briefly appears in the video, he marveled that it appeared to be a big cat and noticed that a similar suspect feline had been spotted by a pair of witnesses in the neighboring town just a few days earlier. I, look, I'm convinced that there is a black cat in the UK. Um, for many, many reasons. I, I've talked to people who said, yes, they, they've seen them. They've seen the black cat. Uh, Jenny, the psychic that was just on the show recently, on the 200th, she had seen the black cat. So, yeah, I, I'm I'm 100% on board saying, yep, there is a black cat that is being seen. All righty, let me throw this up on the Facebook fan page while I'm doing it. Another black cat sighting. And make sure it's the actual video. Yep, there we go. Enjoy. Tell me what you think. It's on the unofficial fan page. That's not the unofficial. It's the official fan page, Paranormal Almanac, on uh, on Facebook. And I apologize to those people that don't have Facebook and they get mad at me because I don't link them anywhere else because I forget and I'm not that smart of a person. But um, ask a friend. Someone, someone you know must have Facebook. It's free to look at it. It's not like it's a you know a closed group or anything. But anyhow... Enjoy the video. Tell me what you think. All right, that about does it for uh, Paranormal News. Get, let's get right on into this episode. Let's see. Uh, last call from the 200th merch. It's definitely the last call. This is the last week for the 200th merch. You have been warned. Um, I actually have to purchase a couple of things before they go away because there's two shirts that I want to get as well. All right, let's take a quick break. We'll be right back with more Paranormal Almanac. We are back. All righty. 
I didn't know what to call this episode. That's just the uh, God's honest truth. It was a, I wanted to do another spooktacular, weird mystery episode, but this was just like a conglomerate of weird shit. So I was like, oh, I'll just call it the weird shit show. I used to do those weird shit shows. I've only done a couple of them and I really enjoy them, but it takes a lot of effort to, you know, get them all pieced together so I could do them live. But I'm going to do, an, don't worry, I'm going to do another weird shit show on um, Facebook Live and Twitch. But I figured, why not do a weird shit show? For the podcast, for all of you wonderful listeners. And I got to say, I love October because October, my, my, I just jump up in the rankings because, you know, everybody's looking for spooky shit and they find Paranormal Almanac. So all you new listeners, welcome. I really hope you enjoy these shows. It seems like you have. I've gone from, you know, the, the 80, top 80. Look, I'm always in the top 100, which blows my mind. Thank you to everybody who listens. I'm not saying that it doesn't, it does, I'm not saying that uh, like shrugging it off. That is really a shock and amazing accomplishment. And I thank you all. But in October, I'm in like the 50s and the 20s. I mean, up to really, the, the podcast really jumps up there. So all you new listeners, really hope you like my rambling that I've done throughout this episode so far. Don't worry, I'm getting to the nitty-gritty, the meat of the episode. A weird shit show as it is. Now, this first one, though, is actually a leftover of last week's episode about cursed movies or haunted movies. It didn't quite fit the episode. But I didn't want the story to just kind of, because I'd never heard of it. I didn't want the story that I'd never heard to never be told. So I wanted to add it here because it's a bizarre it's a weird shit show is what it is. It's about an extra from the movie Scarface. You all know what Scarface is. I don't have to go into that. So it's about a disappearance, though, of an extra. And I used to be an extra. For all you new listeners, I used to be an extra back in the day in, in tons of movies like Seven and The Craft and, um, I don't know, like Seinfeld and Friends and you, you name it. I, if it was in the 90s, chances are I was in it. A Man on the Moon, you name it. But this is a... So I love a good extra story because extras always have the best stories. This is not a good best extra story. This is about the disappearance of an extra from Scarface. Now there's a scene in the movie where Tony and others are upstairs in an apartment while Manny is supposed to be keeping a watch from his car. So Manny gets kind of like distracted by this hot blonde in a bikini and he starts hitting on her. Now in real life, that hot blonde in the bikini was an extra and her name was Tammy Lynn Leppert. And since I just said was, you can kind of guess where this story is going. So Tammy was a Florida beauty queen and a model who, near the time of the shooting of the movie, that is, went to a party and her friend said she never came back the same person. So right around the time of filming Scarface, she goes to a party and they said something happened at the party. They don't know what it was, but after that party, she became paranoid. She isolated herself. She was convinced someone was trying to kill her. Now, according to her mother, Linda, Linda was like, you know what? I, she was so convinced someone was trying to, to kill her that I was convinced that someone was trying to kill Tammy. I mean, that's how real it was. Uh, Linda said, then she said, Mom, what would you say if I told you someone was trying to kill me? I just took a deep breath and I said, do you think someone's trying to kill you, Tammy? And she said, yes. So on the fourth day of the filming, character in the movie was shot. Tammy saw the blood packet get activated. That's how they do shootings in the movie, in case you didn't know that. It's a blood packet. It's a squib is what they call it. It, it bursts almost like a little tiny firecracker. 
blood gets splattered. Everyone on set said Tammy had a breakdown and began to hysterically cry. She mentally broke down. It was so traumatic for her that she actually quit the movie and moved back home. This story, in case it sounds kind of familiar to you, was actually on Unsolved Mystery. While on Unsolved Mystery, her mother said there were good days and bad days with Tammy when she moved back home, but eventually... Tammy snapped and began smashing the windows in their home and attacking family members, saying they were trying to poison her. So they send Tammy in for a psych evaluation, and it shows no signs of drug or alcohol use, so nothing was in her system. That's very important. I initially thought, oh, well, they gave her, she took a drug for the first time at this party, and it altered her chemistry, brain chemistry, and she was never the same again. No. They said there was no signs of drug or alcohol use in her system. The following day after that psych eval, she and her friend went for a drive to the beach and Tammy never came home. So the guy told the police that they'd gotten into an argument and Tammy wanted to get out of the car, so he'd let her, which is not a good idea if someone's having a mental break like Tammy was doing. She was left near Cocoa Beach, which is five miles from their home, with no shoes and her purse. But like I said, Tammy, never seen again. So after Tammy's disappearance, Cocoa Beach detective Harold Lewis received two phone calls from a woman claiming that Tammy was still alive. In the first call, the woman said that Tammy was well and would make contact when the time was right. During the second call, though, she said that Tammy was doing what she always wanted, going to school and becoming a nurse. See? Fucking weird, right? So is Tammy still alive and just left and never came back? If so, where is she? Is Tammy still out there? This isn't that old of a story and not old, that old of a movie. Tammy could still be alive somewhere out there, just gone. She just disappeared. See what I mean? It didn't really fit like Scarface, you know, Scarface was cursed movie. It's just some weird shit that happened during it. All right, let's continue on with some even more weird shit throughout history. Now, this next one, we got to go back to September 8th, 1863, to Nova Scotia. That's when an eight-year-old boy named George Colin Colley Albright. Look, pick two names. Everybody gets two. You don't get four. But George came across, good old eight-year-old George, he came across something bizarre. He stumbled across a man barely alive with both legs amputated sitting against a rock. Now, this man would later be known as Jerome of Sandy Cove because, you know, well, he was found in Sandy Cove. And even though the village brought in like sailors from different nationalities to see if they could get Jerome to speak, they, they did like all these sailors, including English, French, Latin, Italian, Spanish. Jerome would never say anything besides mumbling something that sounded like Jerome. So they called him Jerome of Sandy Cove. That seems pretty apt. All right, it gets weirder, though. His amputated legs, well, they were partially healed. So it wasn't like he got his legs ripped off by a shark and made his way to shore and just kind of sat there. No, no, no. His legs were surgically amputated and were in the process of healing, sort of. He wasn't in the best shape. When he was found, he had the clothes on his back, Beside him was a jug of water 
a tin of biscuits, and that's it. So he was left there. He was dumped there. He was suffering from the cold and the exposure. So, you know, George Colin Colley Albright told the authorities, they came out and they went, holy crap, he wasn't kidding. I thought it was some kind of like stand by me kind of thing. No, it was real. Um, so they take Jerome to the Albright home in the village of Digby Neck to be nursed back to health. So word got out and people came by to see him or more accurately came by to gawk at him, which guess what? Shockingly, he didn't like and started barking at them. I can't imagine why. But no matter what language they tried, he wouldn't or couldn't respond. And like I said, they went through the gambit of all languages in the area. Here's some things that the police noted. His hands were too soft for him to be a manual laborer. So they said he's probably not like a shipman or a seaman or anything like that. He was described as being Mediterranean appearance, so probably not from the area. And... He wouldn't speak. So, yeah, that's there you go. There's the things the police noted in, what, 1863. So the Albrights, they really couldn't afford to help and feed him. They were kind of on a poor family. So he went from house to house in this village, then the next village. So the the to try and get people to help him, the government of Nova Scotia actually voted a special stipend of $2 a week to support Jerome. So if you had Jerome in your house, you get an extra two bucks a week. Now, Jerome was eventually sent to stay with Jean Nicola, who is a Corsican deserter and could speak several languages. He tried for seven years to get Jerome to speak any of the languages, and it didn't happen. Uh, so Jerome, like I said, he was staying there for seven years. Eventually, he went to live with another family who they seemed like wonderful people. They opened up a freak show style like thing for Jerome, charging people to come and stare at Jerome because, like I said, they're horrible, horrible people. But even with this shit, Jerome stayed there until his death on April 15th, 1912, never speaking. So there's a lot of guesses online for whom Jerome might have been and why his legs were amputated, including punishment for attempting a mutiny on a ship. No proof of that. And they said his hands were soft, so he probably didn't work on a ship. He was the heir to a fortune and left on the shore by someone hoping to get his inheritance. Sure, great, great uh, theory. Um, no proof for it. A popular online theory, this one's taken right from the internet, Um says that on the other side of the Bay of Fundy in Chipman, New Brunswick, in 1859, just a few years before Jerome's appearance, a young foreigner was reported as fa having fallen through the river ice. He developed gangrene in both legs. He became known as Gamby, probably because on awakening, he kept calling for Gamba, which is Italian for leg, apparently. So good old Gamby, he was proven to be a burden for the people of Chipman, and it was rumored that a passing schooner captain was paid to transport him away. The captain could have possibly just sailed to the opposite side of the Bay of Nova Scotia, where he became Sandy Cove's problem and Jerome. Look, I don't know who Jerome was, but if that is the case, the popular internet theory is the case that Gamby just became known as Jerome. And there is proof that Gamby existed. That one is proof. But there's no proof that Gamby was dumped just across the bay. 
And if it's just across the bay, are you telling me that nobody across the bay had any clue about a Gamby? And then when Jerome showed up, they were like, that's got to be fucking Gamby, right? I mean, look across the bay right there. That's where Gamby lives. And now we got our own Gamby, and his name is Jerome. He's not saying the word Gamby now. He's just saying Jerome. Weird. Weird shit is what I'm saying. All righty, moving on to October 1928. Still in the UK, or not still in the UK, in the UK. This one is even paranormal. A train carrying 60 passengers was making its way from Leeds to Bristol. But a thick fog obscured a red signal by the Charfield, Charfield Railway Station of Charfield Village, which is located in Gloucestershire. Gloucester. I don't know. It doesn't matter. It's located in the UK. So we're talking about Charfield Village. All right. So the train doesn't see the red signal, and it crashes, like just smashes straight into a freight train, which ignited gas cylinders that caused a huge explosion, a massive fire, 16 people died in the crash, including two young children, a boy and a girl, both young. They were burnt so badly they couldn't be identified. Now, almost everyone is identified, most of them, grossly enough, by their clothes and their jewelry because they were so charred beyond recognition. But the two children were never identified. It gets weirder. Records didn't show two unaccounted children on the train. And no matter how hard they tried, the train company couldn't find anyone to identify these two children. So a memorial was built near the Charfield station for the uh, victims of the crash. And that's where the mystery gets a part two. Locals say that every year on the anniversary of the crash, a mysterious woman wearing a long black robe would visit the children's grave leaving them flowers before getting in a chauffeur-driven, blacked-out limousine and leaving. So she becomes kind of like a local celebrity, urban legend kind of a person. So the media stakes out the memorial in the early 60s, and they try to approach her to see who she was, and, well, yeah, nice going, guys. She ran off and never returned. Remember, this happened in 1928. It kept going every year. This woman would show up until the early 60s when the media scared her away. Part three of this weird shit show. There are numerous reports of sightings of the ghosts of the children standing hand in hand near the site of the crash to this day. All right. There are theories online about who these kids were, but they're all bullshit, including one that says the two bodies weren't human at all, but ventriloquist dummies. Really? I don't care how charred these things were. You can't tell me that someone's going, I don't think those are real kids. I think it's just two ventriloquists. No, bullshit. There's no evidence given for that. Or the next one. They were not the bodies of children, but instead of small riding jockeys. Um, okay, no evidence of that. And still, there's no missing jockeys that happened in the area or on the train. Are you telling me that someone didn't notice Two jockeys walking around in the train. And then when the train crashed, they didn't think to go, eh, there's two small people. They were burnt beyond red. I bet it's one of those jockeys. You know, bullshit. It's, again, un- unsubstantiated urban legend bullshit kind of internet rumors that get added to these stories time and time again, where when you actually look up these stories, you have to filter through some bullshit like that. 
but still weird. So we got two kids. No one knows where they came from. No one knows who they are. No one knows, you know, why they were on the train. They get killed. Then they got a weird woman showing up for 40 plus years with, you know, giving flowers to their graves. Then you got the ghosts of the kids. That's some weird shit. See what I'm saying here? All righty. Up next is a weird one because I'd never heard of it. And it seems like something that should have been a bigger story, I'll say. It's called the Toledo Clubber. Throughout 1925 and well into 1926, I'm going to say this next part very slowly. All right. Throughout 1925, well into 1926, a man with a face painted red and said to have a maniacal laugh by eyewitnesses and the victims that survived was said to have stalked the west end of Toledo, randomly selecting women walking alone after dark and clubbing them, many of them, to death. His face was painted red and he had a maniacal laugh? What the absolute crap is that? All right, at the end of the attacks, 12 women had been victimized. Five had died from the attacks. The remainder of them, at seven, in case you didn't want to do the math, I'll do it for you, were left severely, severely wounded. Now I'm adding the second severely because holy shit, he clubbed the hell out of them using a heavy object such as a bat or a club. That's right, the killer would hit his victims from behind and then continue to smash their faces in. Yeah, I know. See what I mean? How is this not a bigger story? There's a serial killer out there who painted his face red, laughed like the motherfucking Joker, and was never caught. So the first victim, Mrs. Frank Hall, was severely beaten on November 10th while sitting in front of her house, but she survives the attack. The next two victims, Emma Hatfield and Lydia Baumgartner, attacked on separate days, were both attacked from behind while walking down the streets at night. Both of these Victims, I guess I'll call them, survived initially, but later died of their injuries. Both were be, both of them, though, were able to give police a description of their attacker. And, of course, red face, laughing maniacally, hitting me on the back of the fucking head. The next week, someone was attacked at least once a day. Two more people died this week, including a young school teacher named Lily Croy and a middle-aged housewife, which I couldn't find her name. Another victim was Mary Handley, who was found bludgeoned to death outside her house. So the police are like, what in the crap is going on? We got some sicko like guy because everybody said he was a guy. Every eyewitness said he was a guy. So the city had the American Legion put over 1,000 men onto the street to try and stop the clubber. Women were also cautioned not to walk alone at night. And any lone woman was actually accompanied by an American Legion man, which I got to say, it's still a stranger, strange dude. He could have easily been the killer, but sure, great. Glad you tried to help the woman. That's a good thing. Why the fuck is it that it's like, what, like 100 years later? Yeah, it's like almost 100 years later, and women still can't walk alone at night because men suck. That's why. That's the answer, Kurt. All right, so a hundred of tip, hundreds of tips were sent to the police, and uh, you know the description the police sent out was weird as shit. Police described him as having superhuman strength, fiery eyes, and a beast-like appearance. Yeah, that's the police description of this man. All right, so the killing stopped after the two-week spree. The case went cold. Now, 
I actually wanted to find some of the articles. I wanted to find out what people were actually saying about the Toledo Clubber. So here's one from the Cornell Daily Sun on October 27, 1926. Second killing in 24 hours arouses city. Police work on two crimes, Toledo, October 26th. The second woman murdered the second woman murder mystery in Toledo in the past 24 hours was thrust upon police for solution tonight following the finding of the body of Miss Mary Alden, 47, in the dining room of her home. The entire police department has been working feverishly throughout the day in an effort to find the slayer of the first victim, Miss Lily Croy, schoolteacher, who was murdered and criminally attacked Monday night. Mrs. Alden's body, pierced by several bullet wounds, was found late today by her husband who returned from work in a factory. Okay, doesn't seem to be the clubber. Civic uh, organizations, city officials, police, and private citizens have been working in the state of excitement throughout the day in a connection with the Croy killings when the news of the Alden death spread. Woman shot the Alden murder differed from the Croy case and the three preceding it in the past 14 months here. See? The dates don't really freaking add up. Um, Miss Alden was shot to death in her own home about 9 in the morning, officials believe, while others were attacked in secluded parts of the city in the nights with clubs or heavy iron instruments. The scene of the killing of Mrs. Alden, only a few blocks from the places where the other four women were attacked or their bodies were found. In connection with the slaying of Miss Croy, the Toledo Teachers Association offers a reward of $1,000 for the arrest and conviction of the killer. City officials offer $1,000, a Toledo newspaper offers $600, and the Toledo Automobile Club, $100. There's a lot of money being thrown around to try and catch this Toledo clubber guy. But there's many, many more. There is the artist conception of the Toledo's clubber from the um, newspaper back in the day. And he's just like this gruesome, three-tooth-looking dude with big buggy eyes. Um, there's the Jack the Clubber baffles the police. That's right. They wanted to kind of say it was kind of like Jack the Ripper, but Jack the Clubber. That one was in the Akron Beacon Journal the same time. Tenth woman is attacked by Toledo Clubber. Thousand ex-servicemen, police, fire department, and deputy sheriff engage in manhunt. Girl struck down despite activity. City terror struck by painted prowler who mutters, Fickle women that should be killed. So now he's even saying weird shit, too. He's not just red. He's saying fickle women that should be killed. This next one is the clubber again reported scene. Reward higher. Toledo girl declares man from the shadows pursued her for two blocks. Uh, this one's from 1924, Toledo, Ohio. With the beliefs in the minds of most citizens that Toledo's clubber maniac, who since last May has killed two women and injured seven others, was still at large today. Rewards for his capture had been increased to $1,500. Let's see. School teacher victim of brutal Toledo clubber. Identity of clubber near, police believe. Three suspects held while reward of $4,600 are posted in Toledo. That one happened on October 28, 1926. This next one. Hellish laugh. Emma Hatfield was the first victim of Toledo Clubber, a vicious nocturnal marauder who struck terror in the hearts of women of the Ohio City. Lurking in the shadows, this pillar of evil rained heavy blows on his victim, then laughed, a laugh that survivors said was born in hell. Uh, let's see. I think that's it. I think it's for the, for the articles. But how is that not a bigger fucking story? Like, that's bizarre to me. Absolutely bizarre. Oh, no, there's actually more. Um, <clears throat> the New York Times article published during the spree. I wanted to read this one as well. 
uh, stated that the Toledo police were rounding up quote-unquote morons and didn't have any actual suspects. It's also said that Toledo's mayor at the time, Bernard Brow, received a letter from the clubber, the clubber, but the veracity of this and or of its contents are unknown. So, yeah, the clubber was apparently mailing the mayor, the mayor of the time. Like, that's just bizarre. Um, all right, it's theories time. First theory is a man named Stanley Hop or Hope, who was awaiting execution in 1928 for the abduction and murder of seven-year-old Dorothy, or Dorothy uh, Seligowski, confessed to being the murderer of one of the clubber's victims, school teacher Lily Croy. He said he was a taxi driver who was on trial for beating Dorothy to de death during a bootleg whiskey-fueled crime spree. After his confession, Stanley was found guilty of Dorothy's murder, but not Lily's murder, and he was executed. Another man, James Coiner, serving a sentence in a Michigan City, Indiana prison for grave robbery, was questioned and investigated by the Chicago police in connection to the Toledo Clubber, as well as based on evidence of letters that he had smuggled out of prison to his sister in Chicago. That's right. He actually wrote his sister while he was in prison. And in these letters, it says... He mentions a trunk that may have had objects stolen from grave robberies and also mentioned there are other evidence in that trunk that, if discovered, would make him, quote-unquote, through forever. So some of the women's uh, bodies that were clubbed to death were reportedly found without skulls or portions of their skulls. Authorities were on the lookout for these skulls as evidence, and the Chicago police became tipped off and notified the Toledo police when he made those statements, that he was in the Toledo area when six of the attacks actually took place. So it turns out this James Coiner guy was actually an alias. His real name was Alonzo Robinson. He was a career criminal and a killer. He had a long history of terrorizing women. But here is a grain of salt story from a website about him that I cannot say is accurate. They said, born to poverty in Cleveland, Mississippi, Robinson was arrested by hometown authorities in 1918 on charges of mailing obscene letters to local women. He escaped from custody, en route to jail, made his getaway. That's so weird. He mailed obscene letters to local women. How would he ever know that they received? That's just a dumb crime. He's, he's dumb. Uh, he made his getaway despite a bullet in the shoulder. Eight years later, he then decapitated, oh, when decapitated women's bodies started turning up around Michigan City, Police suspected Robinson, alias James Coiner, of multiple murders. Four severed heads were found at the house he once occupied in Ferndale, Michigan, but Robinson had moved on by that point. Convicted and sentenced to prison for grave robbing in Indiana, interrogated by Michigan authorities in jail, Robinson played dumb, and the existing evidence proved insufficient to support a murder charge. He was paroled in July of 1934. He returned to Cleveland, Mississippi to pick up his old hobby of writing obscene letters once again. One was mailed to an Indianapolis woman, the incorrect address identical to a recent misprint in an Indianapolis newspaper. Postal inspectors were still scouring the police subscription, the paper subscription list when Robinson claimed two more victims close to home. On uh, December 8, 1934, Aurelius Turner and his wife were shot to death in Cleveland. The woman's body was mutilated with chunks of flesh sliced off and carried away by the killer. A month later, federal authorities traced poison pen artist James Coiner to a post office box in Shaw, Mississippi. Were these women writing back to him? What is happening? 
Uh, officers were waiting when he came to get his mail on January 12, 1935. He went for his 38, but the deputies were faster, surrendered in the face of superior firepower. A search of his pockets and his lodgings revealed more obscene letters, a packet of human hair in Turner's color, and strips of human flesh, salted and cured like beef jerky. That's gross. Um, in custody, he freely confessed to the murders. He also admitted ownership of the heads found in Michigan, but claimed there were trophies secured during various grave robbing expeditions. The police offered no other motives for his actions, but they claimed that um, he admitted he was a sex pervert. Gee, you think? Which is considered to be the underlying cause for the crime. Now get this. A lot of armchair detectives, some actually in the police force, don't believe that the clubber was either of these guys and that the clubber will probably always be a mystery unless, of course, someone, you know, finds the freaking skulls and their grandpa's, you know, trunk that they got from his estate. You know what I mean? Like, he's going to be found. The only way he's going to be found is if he was someone was stupid enough to keep these skulls as a trophy and they're still out there just waiting to be found is what I'm saying. Weird is what I'm saying. It's fucking weird. So back in the day, that was a thing. Guys would send obscene letters and then hope the women would write them back. Why? Why would anybody write them back? What is happening with that? I don't even get the, the thrill of sending an obscene letter. I mean, it's like sending a dick pic nowadays. I don't get that thrill either. Not that I want them. Please don't send me dick pics or don't send me uh, obscene letters. I'm going to say no to both of those. But you know what I mean? Like, I just don't get the the the... the thrill of that. Anyhow, it's dumb is what I'm saying. Guys, don't do it. Don't send dick pics and don't send obscene letters. That's dumb on top of dumb. All right. This next one is a quicker one, but equally weird. This one is from 1981. Let's go back to February 8th, 1981. When homeless person Leroy Carter Jr. was sleeping in the Golden Gate Park in San Francisco. Well, he was sleeping. He was brutally killed while sleeping is more accurately. Uh, let's see. Police were called to the scene the next day to find that Leroy's head had been cut off and that a chicken wing and a couple pieces of corn was stuffed in the neck hole. Like I, what, I mean, what do you call that? Where, you know where his head was? Well, it's gone now. And a chicken wing and two pieces of corn was stuck there. So neck holes, what I'm going to call it. All right. Approximately 50 yards away was a box containing a slaughtered chicken. Hence the chicken wing. So, police surmised the beheading was done with an axe or a machete, and this doesn't this wasn't just a murder. This was a human sacrifice. That's because enter into this story, Detective Sandy Gallant. She was contacted to assist with, to assist with this case because she had been involved in the investigation of a mass murder and suicide in Guyana a few years before. Now, she had begun to research world religions and cults in the wake of the Jonestown Massacre. Up until this point, this is the 80s, mind you. They didn't really have anybody on the force that was, you know, well-versed in world religions and cults. So she suspected the killer was a practitioner of Palo Mayombe, or it's probably Payo Mayombe, which is a religion that can be traced back to the year 1500 AD in the Congo Basin, involves black magic. So... She takes a look at the case and she goes, oh, Carter's head would be found near the body of his, the location of his body. Let me start that again. Carter's head would be found near the location his body was discovered 
42 days after his death. And they were like, well, no, that's dumb. And so she goes to an interview in the, in the New York Times, or the Los Angeles Times, I'm sorry. She's in an interview in the Los Angeles Times. She explains, Sandy explains, that pieces of the head would first be used in ceremonies for three weeks, utilizing a cauldron to perform the rituals. At the end of those 21 days, if the priest determined it appropriate, he'd actually sleep in an area with his head and with the, he would sleep in an area with his, with this head, I get it, and with this cauldron for another 21 days. That's gross. So the first 20 day, 21 days, pieces of his head would be used in ceremonies. If it seems appropriate, and why would it not? This dude would actually sleep in the same area as the head and the cauldron for another 21 days. Then on the 42nd day, he discards the head in close proximity to where he took it from. So again, you know, police were like, nah, I don't think so. And she's like, no, no, no. That is the sacred way of returning the head. She's like, we were, she said, we were literally laughed at by our homicide investigators and our chief of detectives. It was like, give me a break. This stuff doesn't happen. It's 1981. It's San Francisco. No, thank you. So because of that, there was no surveillance in place. And guess what? The severed head was found on March 22nd, 42 days after Carter's murder, left near the location of his body. So, um, yeah, an unsolved Palo Mayombe ritual sacrifice happened on the streets of San Francisco in the 80s. Um, based on this next article, I'm going to say that's the last time they didn't believe her because this article from 1989, so seven years afterwards, Satan sleuths, once scoffed by peers, police experts in occult crime now are frighteningly in demand. That's right. Just seven or eight years later, now these people are in demand. People like Sandy are in demand. It goes through the the crime that I just told you. Um, she said, uh, we were literally laughed. It was like, give me a break. This stuff doesn't happen. But today, she's a leading expert among the small but growing number of police officers who have carved out a specialty in crimes connected with the occult. Uh, let's see. And the 42nd day, returns exactly how it happened. Yep, the head was returned on the 42nd day, not far where the body was found. But no one from the San Francisco Police Department was there to see it, let alone arrest whoever returned it. That's right. It's an unsolved crime. Our problem was, even though our homicide detective didn't buy it, my partner and I weren't out there during surveillance on the 42nd day either, she said. I think looking back on it, we had a really difficult time, too, believing that something like this could happen, even though it was our theory. I just got a call yesterday from a state on the East Coast, remember this is 1989, and the investigator had gotten a call about a father who went into his son's room and found a human head under the kid's bed. It appears that it was dug up from a cemetery, but he found a human head. Uh... Yeah, that, that's the end of that kid as far as I'm concerned. What the crap? If you came home and you were like, you know, snooping in your kid's room expecting to find like, I don't know, drugs or something, and you find a human head, what do you do with that? How do you handle that situation besides, you know, immediately getting the kid arrested? Because that's what I would do. She's like, I've had other cases where kids have gotten into real bizarre types of activity like mutilating birds, animals, and a really graphic drawings of dismembered bodies Parents don't even recognize this as a disturbed child. They think it's normal for a 14 or 15-year-old kid to be doing these things. 
It's not normal. Yeah, Kurt here. No, that's not normal. You find this crap? That is not normal. Um, She's like, it's too weird. Often these things go away or don't get solved because there's no evidence that'll stand up in court. We're talking about satan- satanic child abusers, women who breed babies for satanic sacrifices. These things are real and do happen. That is insane. Uh, oh, she said in the 70s, it was computer crimes. In the 80s, it was terrorism. Occult crime is really the crime of the 90s. Oh, that's that's lovely. I don't remember the 90s being filled with occult crimes, and hopefully that wasn't the case, but still. Told you. Fucking weird. All right, for this next one, let's go to space. That's right, space. This next one is called, I'm going to get this name wrong. I, I'm, I fully admit I'm going to get this name wrong. It is called Przybilski's Star. I think I actually got that kind of right. Now, Przybilski's Star was discovered by us humans in the 1960s. It's weird. It's weird to science scientists and non-scientists alike because this star is full of plutonium, which, in case you don't know, is an element that should not exist anymore in nature as it would have all decayed in other elements. So how did it get here? Well, we don't know. I definitely don't know, but we don't know. But get this. Carl Sagan, Josef Slavosky, along with Frank Drake, all said, looking for radioactive elements exactly like this in stars as a possible alien signal is the best way to find aliens. Then, boom, we find this star with the exact sets of, you know, plutonium or radioactive materials that Carl Sagan freaking said is a possible alien signal. Weird, right? Quick and weird, but it's in freaking space. Carl Sagan even said, look for this stuff if you want to find aliens. And then we find this stuff where it shouldn't be. It should not ever exist the way it exists. Alrighty, for this next one, this is a uh, this is the grain of salt weird shit show part of this episode, but it seems real because there are names, there are dates, there's media coverage. It's just weird is what I'm saying. We go to Pipe Hayes Park in Birmingham, UK for these. The first one, and I said for these because there's two of them, both in Pipe Hayes Park in Birmingham, UK. All right, you with me? The first one, 1817, when Mary Ashford and Barbara Forrest, both 20 years old, went out dancing on May 27th. Now, Mary Ashford was spotted by eyewitnesses with Abraham Thornton around midnight. That's after attending a dance with her friend Hannah Cox. At 4 a.m., Mary shows up to Cox's house, Hannah's house, where she left her work clothes and said that she'd been with Thornton and been with in the, you know, biblical sense. Now, this next bit is from the Birmingham Mail at the time. Hours after she set off for home, her bruised body was found in a water-filled pit in the park by a laborer who had followed two sets of footprints from a slick of blood in the grass. Authorities believe Mary was sexually assaulted and drowned. Whoa. And drowned. I gotta turn that off. There's a, uh, Sexually assaulted and drowned, and Thornton was tried for her murder. Now, Thornton admitted he had sex with her, 
before walking her to Cox's house, but swore he didn't kill her. Now, he was found not guilty after three eyewitnesses backed up his alibi. Okay, so there's this guy, Thornton. She was with him, Abraham Thornton. She was with him, then boom, she's dead. He was tried, gets uh, not guilty, got eyewitnesses, boom, done. Okay, here's the weird time. Fast forward 157 years to May 27th, 1974. Pipe Hayes Park, Birmingham, UK. Authorities say Barbara Forrest was raped and strangled. She had been out dancing with her boyfriend until 1 a.m. when he said he walked Forrest to a bus stop. The boyfriend was questioned and released, but another suspect soon became their number one suspect. Uh, come on, Kurt, that's the best you can do? Another person, ah, here we go. It's not another suspect soon became their number one suspect. How about this? Another person soon became their number one suspect. Nailed it. That suspect was a man named Michael Ian Thornton. All right, Thornton was her co-worker. He was found with bloodstains on his pants and gave a false alibi. But even with all of that, he too was acquitted due to lack of evidence. Now get this. Both Mary Ashford and Barbara Forrest spoke of feelings of a sense of dread in the days before their deaths. Both murders remained unsolved. Both could be possibly have been done by a man named Thornton in the same park, the same town, 157 years apart. So, if you take anything away from this episode... If you go to Birmingham, don't ever talk to or work with anyone named Thornton. You hear me, Thorntons of the world? Something wrong with your blood, people. All right. Up, up next is, you know, a weird one, but a quick one. He's called the Catman of Green Rock. He is a weird black-faced from dirt, not black-faced as a racist motherfucker, but black-faced from dirt, glowing-eyed, non-verbal man who crawls around on his stomach and eats rats. This happens in Green Rock. Uh, the first sightings I can find are from the 70s. There's a local legend that says that he was a Russian sailor who, ab who abandoned his ship that was docked in the harbor in the 1970s due to poor mental health and fighting with other crew members. Stranded there, he began begging on the streets before being attacked by local youths who broke his legs and jaw, leaving him unable to walk or struggling to talk. Reports say that he was physically resisted, that he physically resisted medical treatment or being taken to any kind of shelter, which meant that he had to crawl on his stomach for mobility. Absolutely no truth to any of that as far as I can find. It seems to be just an urban legend in the area, but he wasn't seen just once. This weird black-faced dude with glowing red eyes, non-verbal, crawling around on his stomach eating rats. No, there were multiple sightings of the Catman throughout the 70s and the 80s. Then, here comes the grain of salt time. In 2007, a video popped up online of a guy, yep, you guessed it, with blackface under a car with a dead rat in his mouth. Now, a lot of people say that's just bullshit. Man, it probably is. I'm kind of on that team. It's just, you know, someone trying to, you know, fake the claim of another cryptid, hence the Catman of, of Green Rock. Green Knock, sorry. 
the green knock. Um, but there are some people out there that say, nope, this video is proof that he didn't just disappear in the 80s. He's still out there. There's still some weird dude just crawling around on his stomach eating rats, living with a bunch of cats. So, yeah, there you go. A cat man of green knock. Told you. Freaking weird. Uh, where are we at? 118. Yeah, we're good enough for this episode. That's some weird shit show, right? I'm telling you, something weird is going on in this world. And it and not even this world. There's one in space alone, you know. But there's there's stories that should be bigger stories than they are. And it amazes me that I've gone this long in life without hearing about that red-faced, laughing Toledo clubber guy. That seemed like that should be a way bigger story. Why are there no movies made about this guy? Maybe there are, and I just don't know about it. But that should be up there with, like, the Black Dahlia is what I'm saying. Weird freaking shit show kind of thing. And that thing that he said, that fickle, what did he say, the fickle women? That was weird as shit, too. Um, What did he say? The fickle women should be killed? Yeah, fickle women that should be killed? That's freaking weird. I, even in 1925, I got to say, that's probably freaking weird. But, uh, well, there you go. Did, uh... Did you know about all these? Did I surprise you with any of them? Had you heard of them, I guess is what I'm saying, because there's some weird shit show going on. And um, I hope you guys enjoyed this very different, spooktacular. There was a paranormal story in there, at least one. There's two of them. One of possibly aliens and one about uh, ghost kids. But uh, I wanted to do something a little bit different that was really weird. So I hope you guys like this one. Once again, I'm your host, Kurt Sanding, and this has been another edition of Paranormal Almanac. Hello, you just in the middle of